It's really good to be with you this morning and to continue in the Gospel of John. We've been in it for over a year now, and we're coming to the conclusion in these next couple chapters. And again, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here along with Ryan. And if you are a guest with us, we're so thrilled that you're here today. It was a few uh, months ago, and I went to the grocery store up the street, just less than a mile away, the good old Safeway. I went there around between 10 and 11 at night. So there's about a 50-50 chance that I went there to buy ice cream. 50-50 or 90-10, pretty close, however you want to look at it. But I went there, and I saw a guy going on on the way in. There was a guy, um, an older gentleman, probably in his 70s, just standing outside uh, the Safeway and kind of hanging out. And as I went in, and I picked up whatever I picked up, ice cream or vegetables, as I came out, this man was still there. And I could tell that he was most likely homeless. He most likely didn't have a place to live. He was just hanging around the Safeway, seeing if somebody would would come by and and maybe give him money or or something like that. And and so I got into a conversation with him, Um, just asked him how his night was going, just asked him how he was doing, and quickly realized that I don't think many people ask him how he's doing. And so he was more than happy to share. His name was Tony. And Tony really just opened up in the five or ten minutes that we had together. And what Tony started with is he said, you know, I haven't always, it hasn't always been like this. I said, all right, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, you know, I was really, really motivated years ago, and I was so motivated, and I wanted to be successful, and I really poured into my career, and I really tried to do everything that I could to get up that corporate ladder. And he said, that's really what mattered most to me. And he said, I was married, and he said, but I just, I poured as much time and as much effort as I could into, into my job. He said, and it created a lot of strain in my relationship with my wife, but I felt like that's, that's what I need to do, that's what I should do, and he said that meant the most to me. He said, but then a few years ago, my wife got sick, and he said she passed away. And he said, I realized that none of the work that I did, none of the hours that I put in, none of the, the effort, all of that I poured into my job, it just didn't seem to matter as much anymore. It didn't offer me what I was really looking for. And he said, when my wife passed away, I didn't know what to do, and so I I resorted to gambling, and I resorted to substances, and I resorted to alcohol, and he said, now I find myself without a home. And uh, it was a devastating story. As I talked to Tony, and he talked about how he's been living out on the streets, or he's been living in shelters in U District. I tried to encourage him, and I, and I prayed with him, and I, I, I left, but it stuck in my mind, even as I went home. It was clear that in Tony's life, there were a few things over the past several years that had control over him, or that he gave control to, or that had prominence in his life, the things that meant the most, or the things that he could not let go of. And it made me think of, of this question, and I think of it often, what really has authority in my life? What really has authority? And it's really easy for me to stand up here and just say, Jesus, and we could all say that, most of us this morning, well, Jesus. No, but what has real day-to-day functional authority in our life? I started thinking about it, what consumes me? What do I care most about? What do I care the most about losing? What would I do anything to protect? And I'm sure that you can relate with this. I mean, you can, you can think about this same question. What holds this place of prominence in your life? For Tony, it was his career for a while, and then it was, it was drugs and alcohol. But think about this. Uh, maybe you can relate with one, of these, with one of these sayings. Maybe this will reveal what has authority in your life, functional authority. Maybe you would say this morning, I, I'm, I feel like I'm consumed with the desire to be successful and I feel like I regularly compare myself to those around me and where they are in their career or their life. And that's controlling. Maybe you'd say, I'm constantly, if I'm being honest, I'm constantly worried about what people think about me. And I, go to, and I will go to great lengths to make sure everyone is pleased with me. 
Or maybe you would say, um, you know, I know that I shouldn't look at these things online or think about him or her that way, but if I'm being honest, uh, that's something that I deal with, and it's hard to stop, and I'm not sure even that I want to. Or maybe you'd say, I feel like I'm always worried, and I feel I never feel quite secure, maybe when it comes to finances or when it comes to relationships or maybe just in general. Or maybe you would honestly say, I, I feel like I rise and fall depending on others' recognition and affirmation, and I feel like I can never get enough of that. Or maybe you're here this morning, you would say, I feel like things will never be okay or I'll never be fulfilled until I have blank or until blank happens and you can fill that in. Every day there are multiple things, multiple things competing for this place of prominence in your life. And for simplicity's sake, let's just call it kingship over your life. There are all kinds of things that can take that spot. Maybe it's career, maybe it's money, maybe it's security, um, maybe it's even things that are really good. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's family, maybe it's um, a number of things. Maybe it's sex, maybe it's a substance, maybe it's something from your past, maybe it's others' approval. Maybe it's popularity, but are they worthy of that position in your life? Will they truly hold up? Will they truly serve you? Will they truly satisfy you in the way that you desire? So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to ask a question that's an incredibly important question. We're going to be faced with it because it has massive implications for all of our lives, for how we live our life, for who we live our life for, and for the way that we live it. And so it's going to pop up on the screen. I want us to ask this question as we go through John 19 this morning. Who or what is your king? It's a big question. Who or what is your king? So if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 19. There's also a Bible um, in the Pew, a red Bible, if you want to pick that up or on your phone. Um, Then the passage is also going to be up here on the screen as we step into um, this chapter. And so over the past several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus as he gets closer to the cross. And what we've seen is that Jesus, if we back up a little bit before we jump into John 19, what we've seen is that Jesus, as he spent time preparing his disciples for his departure, and he's in this garden, is that an angry mob comes, led by religious leaders and high priests, and they arrest Jesus. They arrest Jesus, and they take him, and their desire for Jesus is for him to die, is for him to give up his life because they're afraid of what he might do. They're afraid of him having authority. They're honestly just afraid of him being king, that he would put in jeopardy what they care about the most. And so they bring him to this Roman governor, and they bring this mob with them, and they present Jesus, and they say, this man is guilty. And when Pilate, who we're going to see in this account today, when Pilate says, what do you bring him? What's he guilty of? Their answer is, is, is pretty vague, for doing evil. They don't even know exactly, or they aren't willing to say initially what they're bringing him for, except for that they really don't like what he's doing. They feel threatened, and he needs to be put to death. And as Pilate converses with the people, he's said already, I don't see any guilt in him. But it's only incited the mob even more, and that's where we pick up in chapter 19. And so in verse 1, then Pilate, this Roman governor, who the Jews went to, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
and struck him with their hands. So this doesn't look good. I mean, right off the bat, what kind of king is this that would allow this to happen? That would allow this kind of mockery? That would allow this kind of cruelty? That would go through this kind of torture? I don't know how much you know about flogging, but it, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't enjoyable. Usually flogging included a lot of leather strands with either glass or something sharp on the ends. And, and as the soldiers would hit someone with them, it would tear flesh away from their body, sometimes even exposing their organs. And so when it says flogging, it doesn't say that Jesus just got slapped on the wrist. This is literally the beginning of him being tortured to the point of death. Even though Pilate said, I don't find any guilt in him, he still brings him to the soldiers, and he still allows this to happen. So this doesn't look good. You might say, well, what kind, of, what kind of king is this? He's a very different kind of king. He's a very different king, and there's something much greater taking place here. You notice three things, even in this first verse, that Jesus was flogged, that they put a crown of thorns on him, and that they put a robe on him. Now, on the surface, you may think, well, well those are just random acts. But really, and we see immediately that there's something much deeper going on, that Jesus, that God is actually in control of everything that's going on here, and it's very symbolic. The flogging, it takes us back to Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was the beginning of Jesus enduring such great pain on our behalf. The crown, you may think, well, maybe they just found a crown and they placed it on his head. Actually, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of man, at the curse, God talks about thorns and thistles. Because of the curse, because of man breaking God's rule, because of man now having sin inside of him and being disconnected from God, we see the mention of thorns, and now, symbolically, these thorns are being placed on Jesus, because he is now preparing to take on the curse. And you see this robe that's placed on Jesus. And as we look into the future, what we see in Revelation 19 is that Jesus, after he goes to the cross, and after he overcomes sin and death, and after he goes to be with the Father, he's coming back. And he's going to be clothed in a different robe. Revelation 19 says, He is clothed, clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Pilate is just trying to appease the religious leaders, but he has no idea how God is using him to put in place his plan for redemption. As we look on in verse 4, So Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Essentially, Pilate brings him out, and you can imagine this. Jesus is bloody and bruised, and he's wearing this robe, and he's got this crown of thorns, and it's pressed into his head, and blood is trickling down, and, and, and Pilate is essentially saying, behold, look at him. Come on, this is, this is the guy that you're afraid is going to overthrow your power? Look at him. You really want me to put him to death? You really feel threatened by him? 
Isaiah 53, as it was prophesied, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, is one from whom men hide their faces he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And we see this playing out right in front of the religious leaders. This Pilate says, behold this man. I, I don't see anything special about him. Why do you want me to put him to death? In verse 6 it says, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to be He ought to die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. And so now we see the real reason why the Jewish leaders want Jesus dead. Because he is claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the son of God. These are religious leaders who have a certain religious order. And they refuse to believe that Jesus was the son of God. And what's what's amazing about this is that Jesus has been among them and he's done such amazing signs And he's made such amazing claims. And his entire three-year ministry has been filled with things that actually proved him to be the Son of God. But the Jewish Jewish leaders were so blinded by their own selfish desires, by what mattered most to them, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that this was the Messiah. This is the one who has been prophesied back in Isaiah, and they knew about that. But it can't be this guy. Because the king that we want is going to overthrow the government on our behalf. And he's going to give us power and he's going to give us rule. And Jesus says, no, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to usher in a new rule. And that rule is grace. That rule is compassion. That rule is love. Jewish leaders didn't like it at all. So this can't can't be God. So he should be put to death. They were so blinded that they refused to allow Jesus to be their Lord. And so instead they made him out to be a liar. Religion, pride, and control was their king, but not Jesus. And so in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. You might say, why was Pilate afraid of that? Because the Roman people were very superstitious. And so when Pilate heard their real reason for bringing Jesus, that that he claims to be God, for a minute, Pilate actually took a step back and he said, whoa, 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 could I actually be dealing with deity right now? Is is, Is he divine? Because the last thing that Romans wanted to do was upset a God. They didn't want to make a God angry. So Pilate was a little bit freaked out. But, quickly, that goes away. Because Pilate knew that he could not actually allow Jesus to be king. He could not allow Jesus to be king in his life. And the reason? Because he knew it would cost him far too much. And we're going to see here just in a minute exactly what it would have cost him. But because he can't ask this, um, he asks this next question. Because he, can't, because he can't recognize Jesus as God, he asks him this next question in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He should have asked, are you really the son of God? But instead he avoided that and he said, where are you from? He knew it would cost him far too much if he actually believed that this Jesus was king. He knew it would cost him far too much if he actually allowed Jesus to be his king. 
And so he just says, where are you from? He doesn't want to question him about being God because he can't imagine that reality. And so in verse 10, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. Pilate thought he was in control. And in one sense, he had some control. But it was only control that it had been given to him by God. Which is why Jesus even talks about those with greater sin. What he's essentially saying to Pilate is you're playing a part and you don't even know it. He's saying the only reason that you can do any of this is because God has a much greater plan that's unfolding right before your eyes, but you have no idea that that's what's happening. That's what he says here to Pilate. He says there's something much larger going on. Um, it's essentially like this. Um, have you ever seen little kids try to hold court? And what I mean by that is like a little kid wrongs another little kid. And then you see them kind of doing the whole judge thing, and they're just like, this is going to happen to you. I did this all the time as a little kid when I would hang out. If somebody wronged me or they took something from me, I would just give them all these false consequences. Like, I'm four years old, and I'm just like, this is going to happen. I know it's going to happen. And, and meanwhile, at any time, the adults around or the parents could stop it. I wasn't in control. I couldn't put all these consequences on it. I'm four years old. But yet, that's really, um, in a sense, what we see going on here is that Pilate thinks he's in ultimate control. But at the same time, um, God is actually in ultimate control over something far greater. He had no idea what was really happening. He had no idea what was really unfolding right in front of his eyes. That as he was conducting this earthly trial in front of these angry religious leaders, it paled into comparison to the greater trial that was actually being conducted with much more on the line, where the eternal impl implications for humanity laid in the balance, and there's a much greater judge presiding over it. But for this judge, the issue with Jesus isn't Jesus' guilt, but Jesus' worthiness and willingness to take on the guilt of those calling for his life. There's something much greater going on. God was unveiling his plan of redemption. And so in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate seems a little bit scared. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they threatened Pilate. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Um, we went on a camping trip this, uh, this past weekend. Some of the guys are here. If it smells like a campfire next to you, chances are you're sitting next to someone who went camping, and they came straight from there. Um, but we went camping, and on the way back yesterday, uh, riding in the car, um, had a conversation. We were talking about um, just elementary school experiences and when we got in trouble, which for me was um, more often than should have been the case. Uh, but we were just talking about different things that we, that we did as young kids and, and getting in trouble and getting in detention and all those things. And I recounted a story um, back when I was in fourth grade. Um, fourth graders, you go out to recess, right? You maybe play tag. You maybe play some sport. For whatever reason, a large group of boys in, in my fourth grade class thought that it would be awesome to really up the game of tag. And they thought that on a given Friday 
we should all bring belts to school. Um, I didn't wear a belt in fourth grade, but I wore one that day, and I brought a belt. And so for recess that day, we all went out into the open field, and there are teachers all around, and they probably have no idea what's going on, and we divide into two teams, and we whip our belts off, and we just start whipping each other. Um, it seemed like a good plan to begin with until kids started getting just, just hit, bruised up, crying. Teachers are running over what's happening here. Now, let me tell you, it was fourth grade, and I was very ignorant, but I absolutely knew. I didn't have an issue knowing that this wasn't right, <laughs> that I shouldn't be taking part in this, right? That I shouldn't be bringing a belt to school and, and whipping other classmates at recess. <laughs> I knew this. I didn't have an issue knowing right for, from wrong, but here's why I did it. Because the desire to have the approval of my other classmates overwhelmed my desire to do what was right. What's really happening in Pilate's case here is he, he, has, he has no problem seeing what's right and wrong. That's why it says repeatedly in this passage that he sought to release him. Pilate knows that this is absolutely crooked. Pilate knows that they have no real charge to want his life. But as the Jewish people say here, and they talk about Caesar, who was over Pilate, Pilate feels an overwhelming pressure that's far greater than doing what's right. You see, for Pilate, his king was power and prominence and approval. That's very clear here, as he could have done what was right, but he would not release Jesus. Power, prominence, and approval, these were Pilate's kings, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. And so he takes him outside, and in this place that's mentioned here, it's a stone of judgment. It's where, it's where a ruler would be seated, and the other person, the person being accused of a crime, they would be beside him. This was a place to cast final judgment. And so Pilate goes out, and Jesus goes out with him. And in verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was Friday. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. At this point, Pilate is completely mocking the Jewish people. He didn't like them in the first place, and they didn't like him. But he's so tired of all this. He says, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Which is really interesting because the Jewish people hated Caesar. But they were willing to pledge allegiance to Caesar if it meant bringing Jesus to death. Because they too cared far less about doing what was right. And they cared far more about keeping their power and religious authority and prominence. And so they would rather pledge allegiance to someone that they despised because they feared what would happen if they allowed Jesus to actually be king. And so in this final verse, at the end of this trial, we see what happens. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. Throughout this passage, there are really two things that prevented the people and Pilate from allowing Jesus to be king. We can kind of sum them up in two things. One is disbelief and one is fear. So let's just ask the first one here. 
Is disbelief, is it possible that disbelief is preventing Jesus from being your king? And disbelief can go two ways. Maybe disbelief is preventing you from having a relationship with Jesus at all. Maybe you've really struggled to believe that Jesus, that Jesus is good, that Jesus is, is really God, that Jesus could um, have good for you. Maybe you've had a different understanding of Jesus, and it's been one of more um, somebody who wants to just control you but may not have good for you, or someone who would judge you if he really knew you. Maybe disbelief has kept you from having a relationship with Jesus because what goes through your mind is, if Jesus really knew me, would he really want to know me? And let me just tell you, the answer is he does and he does. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done. He knows every time you messed up. He knows all the sins that you might be trying to keep a secret. He knows all the hurt. He knows all the brokenness. He knows what you long for. He knows that you have put things in prominence in a place of kingship over him, and maybe you've done that for years. But the good news is he still says, even with all of that, I want to know you. I want to know you. I gave myself for you. And so maybe you just haven't really known who Jesus really is. And that's kept you from allowing him to be king in your life, to have authority in your life. And maybe, maybe today is the day that he becomes your king. Maybe today is the day that for the first time you understand that he has love for you, good for you, and that he, as we're going to see in a few weeks, endured the wrath of God in your behalf. And he offers you something amazing called grace. Or maybe this morning you have a real, authentic relationship with Jesus, but when it comes to the day-to-day realities of life, you know that there are other things that are taking his position of king in your life. And maybe that's because it's hard for you to believe that he's really a good caretaker. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that he's really going to provide for you in the ways that you need. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that he is really going to keep you safe and secure. And so maybe that's led you to find out or seek out or allow other kings in your life. And maybe that's what we talked about at the beginning. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's a sin of satisfaction. Whatever it may be. Maybe day-to-day disbelief has allowed for other kings in your life. Or maybe it's just the disbelief of pride. I know I struggle with that. That I believe I know better. That, I, that I'm not sure that Jesus is really as good as the Bible says he is, and I believe I know better, and so I want to stay in control. I want to be the one to make the call. I want to be the one to make the decisions. But maybe you've been doing that for a long time, and you have come to the realization that Pilate even has to come to here is that you don't really have as much control as you really think you have. Things haven't been going as well as maybe you wish they would. You've been striving and striving and striving, and maybe Maybe it's time to stop. Maybe it's time to hand over authority. Maybe it's time to lay down your pride and to pick up humility. Because maybe that's preventing Jesus from being your true, real king. Or is fear preventing Jesus from being your king? Fear. What we see is that in the Jewish religious leaders, and even in Pilate, we see a lot of fear. And fear can often come up from something maybe from our past. 
What I want you to hear this morning is the fears that you might have about allowing Jesus to be your king are absolutely combated by what Jesus has done. And so maybe in your past there's been patterns of abuse and you're really fearful of handing over control or authority to Jesus. Can I just tell you that Jesus endured abuse so that you could have healing? Maybe you've seen people walk out of your life, they've let you down, and so you are really concerned or fearful about actually allowing Jesus to have control in your life, to have authority. What we see is that even in the midst of suffering, pain, and death, Jesus doesn't move, he doesn't waver, he stands in your place. And he promises you that he will never leave you or forsake you. Or maybe fear of just, well, what happens? What, what would Jesus ask of me if I actually allow him to lead in my life? He's not going to ask you or ask anything of you that is not ultimately for your good. Because he's a good God and he's a good king. But maybe fear has stepped in. And it's preventing you from allowing Jesus to really be your king. Maybe that's what's happening. As you think about right now the things in your life as you sit here that are competing for that position of authority, control, of kingship in your life, I want you to ask the same question that we asked at the beginning, one of the questions. Is it worthy of the position that it's holding? Is it worthy of that position? There's something amazing that Pilate has said in this passage in chapter 18 and 19. I don't know if you caught it, but it's not by accident. It's not by accident that it's recorded. Between these two chapters, Pilate says it three times. He says this statement. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And Pilate has no idea that at the same time, Pilate's simply echoing what God the Father is saying about his son. As he looks down upon this horrific scene, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. But that's why he's worthy to take on what he is about to take on. Because he is the spotless lamb with no guilt. And he's worthy to be a king, but a different kind of king that is sacrificed for his people. And this is amazing. And so Jesus, who is completely innocent, takes on a death sentence and eventually goes to the cross and takes on our guilt and our sin of a completely guilty people. And Jesus does what you have never been able to do and I've never been able to do, and that's wash ourselves clean of all of our sin of all of our past, of all of our mistakes, of all of the things that we struggle with, of all of our idols. But Jesus does that. He goes to the cross because he's a worthy sacrifice. And God the Father sees that and he says that. I find no guilt in him and he is worthy to take these people's place. And Jesus goes and he dies for those who were calling for his life. And you and I I may not have been there at this time, but we were shouting right along with the people, crucify him. And Jesus willingly goes like a lamb led to the slaughter, not opening his mouth, to give up his life so that we could have new life. This is a worthy king 
So as you think about those things or that person who is taking a position of prominence in your day-to-day life as king, ask that question, are they worthy? Is it worthy? Has it loved you to the extent that Jesus has poured out his love for you? Has it sacrificed for you in the way that Jesus has sacrificed for you? Can it promise to never leave you, to never forsake you, to never let you down? Only Jesus has this power and authority. Only Jesus can say this with absolute certainty. Only Jesus is a truly worthy king. No one and nothing else has done for you what Jesus has done for you or will do for you. Will you allow him to consume you? And will you submit to him? Because he's a good king. He's a worthy king. But the question is, is he your king?